0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Over the last few months, I've had many, many conversations about the future of oil. Now in Canada, that means the future of the Alberta oil sands. And is when is oil going to peak? What will the decline curve look like? Will it have a big shoulder on it and a slow decline, or will it have a, a small shoulder and a steep decline? Um, and my take coming into this conversation with David Doherty, who is the head of oil and renewable fuels for Bloomberg NEF, is that it was going to be an earlier peak and a more rapid decline. And I think the, what really pushed me in that direction was the inc- transformation of the auto sector, which of course is you know responsible for most of the demand uh, for uh, road fuel, and it's just I saw a Reuters story just not that long ago uh, that said um, 1.2 trillion dollars committed by the transportation sector to electrify. I can't remember if it was 2030 or 2040, but it's a big number, and clearly uh, most experts I've talked to are surprised at how quickly uh, the auto sector is switching over to electric. And so that's influenced my thinking, but it's not my thinking that matters. It's David. So we're going to welcome him to the interview.
1: Thanks. Pretty nice to be here.
0: Well, this is, I'm, I'm fascinated by this because I now you wouldn't know this you're based in um, uh, you're based in Asia, um, but in Canada, The Alberta oil sands, uh, not only does it dominate production, but it dominates the energy conversation. You know, it's always about oil and gas, always about oil and gas. And when you talk about oil, then it's the oil sands. But your take on this, uh, I was kind of surprised. Now, this is, we should point out, I guess, for listeners that the analysis we're going to be talking about today uh, was originally done last year but you're going to update it a bit because you've got some some uh, another report coming out in a couple of months but so we'll my I, I'm looking at your um, uh the first uh graph uh in your report and an uh, oil peak demand in 2035 uh what's your, what's your take how did you arrive at 2035 and have you modified it since the report first came out
1: yeah, sure. So for, for context, about 45% of every oil barrel is consumed in, in the road transport sector. So that's really the most important one, like you said. So any change in the penetration of electric vehicles or alternatives and trucks and heavy duty transport really, really impacts the curve. So the way that we view it is that there's a peak, of decline and more of a plateau towards the back of the curve. So it slows down once the transport, the road transport sector specifically, has you know, hit peak decarbonization or as well on its way. Um, in our new report, actually, this moves forward to a 2030 peak. So five years forward. And, and a lot of that is down to the change in policies and the encouragement of electric vehicles and road transport, but also in the heavy trucking sector, decarbonization of that as things move towards hydrogen, but also hybrid and electric trucks. So there's big changes in that side of things. Um, again encouraged by European Union policy, we'll see another encouragement coming along in the form of the, the US policy, the in, in Inflation Reduction Act. So everything that we do every single year, every time we do this exercise, the peak comes slightly closer because policies are shifting towards that. And regardless of the outlook you look at, if it's the IEA, if it's OPEC, that's, that's what you see. the The risk is that it's to the downside. There's there's less oil demand normally because people see these forecasts and say, "Oh, that's not in line with anything we want to do to get towards, whether it's 1.5 degrees, 2 degrees, even 2.5 degrees." So let's change things and bring that forward.
0: Um, now, I, I have interviewed your colleague uh, Colin uh any number of times, and he uh, he looks after the uh, EV and uh, section of Bloomberg NEF, mm-hmm. and and he he's makes the point that. Uh, with respect to road transportation uh, every six months, every three months, I forget what what the, the number was, but fairly regularly uh, Bloomberg NEF has to revise its numbers because things change so quickly. And, and, and then I suppose, if that's true on the EV side, then that impacts uh, that affects um, road transportation demand. Um, and so are you expecting that, Twenty thirty is, but you know, we're gonna, we're just about in twenty twenty three. That its peak demand is probably not going to creep forward that much in the future in the foreseeable future.
1: Yeah, it's it's hard to say. So so long term 2040, 2050 is obviously uh, a lot further out. So modeling kicks in at that stage, and it's economics that we look at, and, and that doesn't change so much. What normally changes our forecast are like Collins says. These changes that we spot in the short term. So last year, for example, we underestimated what would happen in the electric vehicle sales market, particularly in Europe, and it surprised to the upside massively. That changes where you start your ideas from, where you start your modeling from. And of course, then that flips over the electric fleet into the internal combustion engine fleet on the road much quicker. And that really is what impacts the the year that peak happens. So we brought it forward last year because we saw a lot more electric vehicles in the car fleet for passengers but also in the the trucking fleet so if you look at sales figures for light duty commercial vehicles for example in south korea this year they're already in the double digits and these are delivery vans small size trucks they consume an awful lot more fuel than you or me driving a passenger vehicle particularly in europe where we have much smaller vehicles so yeah the the risk is that it comes forward but there is there is a uh, a point at where passenger vehicles, where we're seeing most of the activity, start to make less impact. Right.
0: Okay. Well, let's talk about some of the other uh, areas of demand for for oil. Now, jet fuel uh, goes up fairly significantly between twenty where we are now, and uh, and twenty fifty. In fact, it's if I'm looking at this correctly, it almost triples. And I guess that makes sense because there isn't a. a, a an easy substitute for, for oil in this case. Right, yeah. So
1: 2020 is probably an unfair number to compare the jet fuel market against. But if if you look at 2019, let's say, non-COVID world, and then look at the 2050 number, it, it doubles from 2019, um, having, having taken a big hit, obviously, in 2020 with lockdowns, etc. Now, it's a tricky market to decarbonize because, rightly, like like you said, there's, there's no you know ready solution Um, Electric is, you know, not there yet. Hydrogen is not there yet, but they've been spoken about by the likes of Boeing and Airbus, for example. And the only real functioning alternative that we could use now to decarbonize is sustainable aviation fuel. So this is basically a biofuel replacement for standard jet fuel, Jet A1. Uh, and this is growing hugely, hugely in popularity, particularly in, in the West Coast of the US with the low, uh, California low carbon fuel standards. But also with the introduction of Canada's fuel standards this year, So you're seeing a lot more activity there. And I think we'll see lots more. So a lot of the refineries in the world who are used to producing diesel, gasoline, I mean, they see the writing on the wall. And a lot have converted to producing uh, renewable fuels. So renewable diesel, which can decarbonize really heavy trucks, it's a one-for-one replacement, and then sustainable aviation fuel, which can decarbonize the aviation um, market. Even still, there are limitations to what we can do for that, and that's because we require feedstocks and different technologies to scale this. So at the moment, what we can do is use things like, you could in theory use uh, feedstocks like canola oil, tallow. But used cooking oil is one of the most popular feedstocks for this. And there's only so much used cooking oil and fat that we can pump into these refineries in order to make sustainable aviation fuels. And the more you use of that, it pumps up the price of those feedstocks, right? So you don't get this economies of scale that you're getting in the transport market, where the more electric vehicles come online, generally the cheaper they become to produce. For this one, you're looking to put more of a limited feedstock into a refinery to get sustainable aviation fuels. So there's a jam there when it comes to getting that price down. So it's far more expensive to put sustainable aviation fuel into an airplane than to just put jet fuel into an airplane. So we need new technology to make that cheaper. And that could be um, municipal solid waste, forestry residue, putting that in instead. That is a new technology.
0: Now, uh, one of the new technologies that I've interviewed uh, the CEO about of this particular company is LanzaJet. Lanza which has a, a technology that takes uh, a combination of a microbial process, CO2 captured CO2, and and renewable electricity, and creates sustainable aviation fuel. And there's a pilot project coming out. I think it's in 20. Will be up and running in 2026 in Sweden. Uh, and Swedish uh, SAS, the Swedish airline, is going to be doing. I think twenty five percent of their fuel will will come from that plant. that's the that's the plan. Um, do you see that kind of technology making much of a making much of a dent in demand?
1: Yeah, um absolutely over the long run you, You've got two different approaches um, in Europe, they have a mandate structure, so think of it as a stick um, and in North America, they tend to have an incentive structure, so a carrot, um where you're economically incentivized to use this. In, in Europe, it's mandated to blend X percentage. So we've already seen Norway mandate a percentage, um, has to be sustainable aviation fuel. France are bringing one in, uh, the UK are bringing one in. So it's going that direction for sure. And um, But again, it's a cost, it's a cost problem. Airlines don't make a huge amount of money. They're not big oil players. They don't have a lot of spare margin to play with. Um, so it's difficult, right? It's difficult for them to put that in and also be competitive. Um, if you're for example air canada flying to japan and canada in, in, implements a mandate but japan doesn't how are you going to compete on that route with say all nippon airways so there's a degree of difficulty there in getting it in but Lancer tech which has this lanza jet subsidiary focusing on this market super popular suncor in in canada um are partnering with them um, i mean the list goes on of companies partnering with this technology so i think it's one of the more promising ones for sure
0: Excellent. Let's talk about one that I'm very interested in, that is chemical feedstocks. And I, about three years ago, I did, I interviewed uh, someone, uh, an expert in, in uh, the uh, petrochemical industry. And he was talking about how in China and I guess in Asia generally, there's a a move to build petrochemical uh, refining complexes. Mm -hmm. And, and many of them uh, use, uh, Uh, heavy oil, which of course my, my focus there was the oil sands. And uh, do you see that, that trend continuing? Um, I mean, these were huge refiners if I remember correctly, uh, a 400,000 barrels a day, something, something like that. Uh, And does that have any, I mean, you're, you're forecasting, let me see, uh, at least a doubling of Mm. the chemical food. No, maybe not quite that much, but anyway, 50% 50% or more increase yeah. in demand for chemical feedstock. <clears throat> so is, is that, is those big petrochemical complexes, is that part of the explanation?
1: Um, well, partially, it's a, which comes first, the demand or supply, I guess is the is, is the question that poses. Um, petrochemical feedstock demand tends to grow because as, as a region or as a population gets wealthier, we, we consume more things, more things that have plastic, more things that, uh, need to be lightweighted. Um, plastics go into, for example, cars. And the lighter a car is, the more fuel efficient it is, the less gasoline it burns. They go into things like airplanes for the same logic. Um, so it's it's a strange one in that more petrochemicals demand might actually mean that there's less consumption of other fuels because it's an efficiency gain. Um, the boom that you're talking about in building out these huge, huge plants has pretty much slowed down. Um, there is a saying where it's like there's no cure for high prices, um, like high prices. People pile into the market and then send prices down, which is pretty much what's happened there. So you're seeing a drop in petrochemical margins. So I think for now we'll see a bit of a pause in that in that story. Um, but they're mainly built out of Malaysia, Southeast Asia, um, and and China, like you said.
0: Well, let's talk about um, where some of that is going to. The uh, increase is going to occur, uh, and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm interested in. I see one of your uh, one of your graphs uh, includes bioplastics, and of course the 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 problem with micro microplastics in in oceans and uh, I mean there's there's a, a the anti plastic movement is gaining steam. I guess is my point here, and uh, is do you see that that has any impact on demand and, or, or, and I guess the, the, you know, development of these renewable plastics, bioplastics, degradable plastics, you know, materials made from something other than, than, than oil.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good distinguishment, um, virgin plastics versus um, recycled plastics. And there's a huge popularity for recycled plastics and they, a green green premium that companies are generally willing to pay to a certain extent. And the reason being is if you think of the end consumer for plastic, um, it could be you in your car, which your car has a lot of plastic in it, but could also be uh, consumer goods. Think of the Unilevers and the Proctor of Gambles of the world. Having a recycled plastic is almost a demand of the customer now, and therefore buying recycled or a bioplastic of some type and being allowed to market that on your packaging, let's say, is is a good thing. Therefore, they're willing to pay more, right? Plastics in general, should you know, the, the goal of a plastic is that it shouldn't be burned and therefore that CO2 shouldn't be emitted into the world. Like you said, it's not, not always the case, but also there's a problem of where you dump it, where you, where you throw it out, and it generally tends to find its way into the ocean. So that is a big problem. The end-life management, of the, in the plastic sector, or what we often hear about as circularity or a circular economy, is a huge trend. And there's a lot of technologies that can take that waste, recycle it, and turn it into things like either diesel or recycled NAFTA. Uh, and we're seeing huge trends in, in that space, particularly supported by large consumer businesses. Um, we have this thing where we have, you know, at the end of the life of your car, you bring it back, it gets recycled, and it gets uh, uh, crushed down and the metal is used again. We we don't have the same systems in place for the, the uh, majority of plastics that we use. They get mixed in together. There's different types of plastics that makes it really hard to separate those streams and to turn them into something that can be used again. So it's problematic. It's not unsolvable, um, but it's not a well-organized system like we have, say, in the auto in the auto sector. So that, that will definitely disrupt demand. But actually, funnily enough, at the moment, you have this premium for recycled feedstocks. So it's more expensive to buy a second-hand or a a second-life feedstock because of that uh, end-use want and the end-use demand for it. So that, again, is problematic in terms of economics.
0: So we have the technologies to do better on the plastic side. We just haven't got the business models?
1: Don't have the business models. You don't have the the structure of trade in place. Um, You have a lot of countries that support both the recycled plastics, but also the recycled fuels world. So uh, used cooking oils, for example, a lot of that comes out of China. There are questions of how will that continue? Will that be? Will the exports of that product be stopped if they develop a domestic industry? Where does all of the trash in the world go to? Will we be allowed to buy it? Will we be allowed to send it there in the first place and buy it back? How does it work? Um, and then it comes down to things like what's the color of plastic? Even smaller sizes of that, if it's PET, um, or polystyrene, for example, how do you separate those out? One might be black, one might be clear plastic. You know, the, the list of this one goes on, and there's so many small, tedious parts that make it really difficult to get that to operate on scale. So far, it's been done, but it's a much smaller scale.
0: Okay, well, let's go on to marine fuels. Um, This seems like an uh, a market where uh, substitutes would be easier to find. I mean, you're not having, you know... There's only uh, so many batteries you can pack into an airplane, so much room for hydrogen, whatever. But uh, marine fuels, uh, especially for these, you know, the big big, uh, cargo ships, it seems like that might be more amenable to alternate fuels. What's your take?
1: Yeah, you're right. Um, And what the the shipping market as a whole benefits from is that they... um, they have a body called the International Maritime Organization that has been pretty instrumental in bringing in strategies and bringing in policies or targets. So like the aviation world has the um, International Civil Aviation Authority, and the shipping world has its body that tries to agree towards decarbonization. And they've got some pretty strict or some pretty ambitious targets already. The problem, however, is that there's possibly too many options to decarbonize that segment. You can use Uh, green ammonia, you hear of methanol, you hear of LNG as an interim solution, um, different grades of oil. Now, the problem is, if you're a port, and there's eight options to decarbonize, you only have so much space, you only have so many tankers, you've only got so much infrastructure that allows you to refuel these, and so many places to put these new technologies, right? And so what the sector really needs to do is think about what kind of ships require what kind of powering and what i mean by that if it's a cargo ship they kind of operate like buses right between the port of los angeles and shanghai for example they go back and forth pretty much it's quite predictable oil tankers on the other hand might be signaling that they're going from antwerp to new york harbor and halfway across they switch and they go somewhere else you need to know what infrastructure is in place at the other the other end of your destination so you can refuel and get back so there's a lot of options there the difficulty is there hasn't been anything settled on yet. But you are hearing from the likes of Maersk that they're buying and building ammonia ships, for example. But each of these comes with its own problems in terms of like leakages and toxic gases and, and other risks. So, too many options almost. And the market is so segmented. A bunker, um, a bunkering hub, has container ships coming to it, it has oil tankers, chemical tankers, roll on, roll off uh, ships, bulk carriers. So, this vast this market is actually about eight nine different markets and a smaller uh, that are much smaller than that and probably are all suited to different types. So that's a really interesting one, and we're actually publishing our shipping outlook this week that jumps into that a little bit more.
0: Well, I have a question for you here because the uh, there's a market called other middle and heavy distillates. That yeah. uh actually is quite hard quite large, uh around uh 35 million barrels a day. So, you know, a little roughly a third of 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 total uh, uh global consumption. Uh what is that market and why does it just pretty much plateau right out to 2050?
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting one. It's both um oil being used in the power sector. So a lot of that would be heavy fuel oil in, in, in Gulf countries, you, um, uh, in Arab Gulf countries. Um, and that is essentially either used to power the region or often to desalinate water. So that's, that's a, a fairly significant piece, but declining as things like wind and solar chip away at that quite, quite comfortably, let's say, at this age. The world has kind of agreed that that technology can scale and works, right? The other part, however, is um, residential, commercial and, and industrial. So that is um, me and you having an oil uh, home uh, heating system, for example, or using LPG as a cooking oil in India or in Africa. Um, It's all of these technologies that um, fuel the use of our sort of normal day-to-day lives, where there are alternatives, but it comes as what comes first, and that's why it's flat. So you see, for example, in India, um, LPG was a huge trend over the last few years as the government brought in an initiative to provide LPG for people to cook and to, to heat their homes. Previously, they may have burned wood, for example, which is heavier in terms of carbon emissions. LPG is that replacement. And there are other replacements for LPG, but as, as it stacks itself along that uh, replacement chain as it moves towards decarbonization, that gives you that flat line from the residential side. Um, and then you get into other things like there's There is fuel required in many refineries, there's fuel required in many petrochemical plants. Um, in the agricultural sector, for example, there's obviously diesel is quite a, um, a large part of that. So there's, beyond the four main sectors, which move the most, there are smaller sectors that have things going on, but they're much smaller in terms of the
0: scale. Okay. Well, uh, that leads me into my next question, which is about upstream oil investment. And this is fascinating because along about, I think it was 2014, uh, was the last time uh, in late 2014, we had a big drop in oil prices and, uh, investment fell 2015, 2016, something like that. And then it fell to a third and it's never really recovered. And there've yep. been warnings. There've been warnings for years. The industry has been saying, you know, if there, the, if there isn't adequate investment in in exploration and production, we're going to have an energy crisis. Well, here we are, uh, and it doesn't. And we still are having problems because the Americans, uh, shale producers, they they don't want to boost their production. They don't want to spend. They don't want to invest and spend capital. The uh, OPEC uh, plus just cut back by two million barrels a day. And where are we going with this? And and uh, is, this, is this trend of underinvesting in order to prop up prices, uh, is that likely to continue?
1: Yeah, it's it's probably a bit more nuanced than that in terms of um, what the market wants. So, yeah, we, we probably have underinvested in terms of expiration and production over the last few years, but they're all for very different reasons. Um, the U.S., for example, at the moment, producers have got some heat from their financiers. Um, to pay down debt. So previously they had borrowed to drill, and now they're they're drilling to pay down borrowings, as opposed to um doing the opposite again. <clears throat> the the benefit of those kind of plays, and what I mean by plays or shale plays, is the market is shifting towards this uh, value over volume model, um, with an ideal lifetime being shorter, so a short life cycle in terms of investment. So big, big, big offshore or Arctic drilling projects, for example, which require lots and lots of capital and then require a long period of time to pay back, are far less attractive and far higher risk now than they were before because of this declining demand curve and because of investor pressure. Um, If you look at the European oil producers, for example, they are facing a lot of heat to move away from high carbon production. Likewise, in Canada, sands are some of the most heavy emitting oil barrels that you can produce. So they're facing pressure from investors. And when you're seeing some different types of regulation, like Corsia in the uh, in the aviation space coming into play, starting to think about the life cycle emissions, so out of the ground and into the use, these things start to trickle down and make an impact. Um, so yeah, there, there, is, there is a huge risk of short-term pain, particularly from something like this Russia-Ukraine war, where all of a sudden all of the chips are thrown up into the air and we're waiting to see where they land. Um versus looking at it in a longer term perspective as to when we might need that barrel to fall off, because ultimately oil and gas companies don't want to invest and not reap the repayment over the lifetime of that and have something shut in before, uh, before the end of its actual life cycle and having a stranded asset. So there's that huge fear there um, for, for oil majors.
0: Well, let's talk about the oil sands uh, because um this is an uh, an industry like no other. Uh, it is more like manufacturing than it is like than a typical uh, uh, oil field, uh, both on the mining side and uh, where you have uh, open uh, strip mines and then on the steam assisted gravity drainage side, which is uh, if you can imagine. Uh, oh, gosh, I'm not even going to try to explain it Doesn't we because we don't need to get into that. But the, the point here is that all your cap uh, a lot of the capital that you're going to use over the life of a project gets spent at the beginning of the project. And then the amount of capital that you require over 30 to 50 years while you're producing it is very, very little. You're, main, you're maintaining and repairing, you're doing some brownfield development, you know to increase production. But you don't have to go to Wall Street. You don't have to go to Bay Street. And beg for capital because you just don't need. In fact, if you look at the cash flow forecast for the oil sands companies in Canada, they, they if they wanted to, they could probably self fund uh, all of their uh, all of their capital requirements, uh, at least this year and, and probably next year. So th- it's and this is about four million barrels of production uh, a day, uh, but that is very different, isn't it? Uh, and it's not like it's not like the Americans. It's not like the North Sea. It's not like the Saudis. It's and and there, it, it production does follow capital investment. Correct.
1: Yep, that, that's fair to say. Yeah, more the more investment to stop the declines in general in those kind of traditional plays um, is beneficial. So if you if you left this traditional oil play and didn't invest any cash, you'd probably see something like. Eight or nine percent declines per year. If you invest, you might get that to three or four percent per year. You're right; the Canadian sands are slightly different, uh, slightly different beasts in that sense.
0: What's your take on the competitiveness of the oil sands going forward? And and I ask that question because uh, in Canada, there's a misconception that the oil sands are very very high cost uh, producers. Now that used to be the case. You know, back in 2014, when they had cost inflation attached to their big construction boom from 2005 to 2014, that was the case. It's not the case anymore. They've driven their costs down to, you know, maybe between 30 and 45 dollars break even on WTI, and and they're going to and the intent that what they're telling investors is they're going to drive it down even further into the 20s, maybe say 25 to 35 dollars a barrel, and, and that's a pretty competitive barrel. Uh So. Is that the perception that you have? And that other, you know, other markets, you know, in Europe and in Asia, uh, is that how you think about the oil sands or is it something else?
1: Yeah, it depends. So they, they have driven down costs over the last few years, but the problem is everybody has. Um, so you've gotten the shale plate that used to be incredibly expensive as well, that are now equally in that range that you talked about 30 to $45, uh, maybe a little bit higher. And um, the difficulty, obviously, in the sands is you, you got to you have to get them out, right? <laughs> You've got to get them. You have, you have the infrastructure to be able to bring it to where it needs to go. There is obviously the natural offtake in the United States, um, shipping shipping oil down, um, and the refineries in the United States are fairly well placed to process Canadian sands. So as the likes of you know Iranian and Venezuelan barrels, those heavy and meteor barrels, <clears throat> are out, that suits the mix. That works quite well. Um, internationally, though, I think what's changing is the cost profile pressure is, uh, and moving towards the carbon profile pressure. So if you look at many scenarios, like the International Energy Agency's net zero scenario, um, there is a scenario there where they try to limit stranded assets. Um, so that means keeping, say, the sands operating. But to do that, you've got to invest in order to decarbonize it, which you know limits the decline cost that you can, or the declines in cost that you can achieve. So there's a huge challenge to decarbonize it if that was, for example, the world we we're going to go towards. But there are technologies, and like you said, because it's a unique kind of production process, it's more like mining, the mix between mining and oil production, let's say, there are um, there are almost synergies to be gained from the mining sector and how they're decarbonizing. So it can be done, but there's the there's the problem of relative cost declines. Everybody's trying to decline uh, to set their, set their costs down and then, and then getting it out to where it needs to be there's no use in just being able to take it out and send it to the to the US if there's demand elsewhere and you're adding layers of pipeline or transaction fees or transport fees storage fees and then ultimately exporting it on a ship in the gulf somewhere that's really where the 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 getting canadian barrels to global markets is 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 a there's a bottleneck there
0: now i'm i'm curious um i've been told Oh, no, let me back up a bit. Uh, out of the 100, roughly 100 barrels a day uh, of oil demand globally, about 10 of that is heavy crude, where the oil sands play. And about five and a half of a million barrels a day uh, is refined in the U.S, primarily in the U.S. Gulf Coast and the Midwest, and then some down in in California. And Venezuela production, Venezuelan production has like fallen off a cliff. It, it And Mexico has announced that in 2024, it's going to withdraw 600,000 of Mexican Mayan, so heavy crude, from the market. So they want to process it domestically. If I'm looking at that as an oil sands producer, because traditionally they wanted other markets. They wanted to get away from relying on the, the Americans. They had such a big discount because the, uh, but now it almost seems like there's a sh- maybe supply shortage or at least a pressure on the market supply pressure, and the American market actually looks pretty good going forward.
1: It depends. I think you need to think about what the refining capacity of the U.S. looks like versus what it used to look like as well. We've seen over the last two years, for example, more than a million barrels per day of U.S. production in the refining sector coming off and more plants come off. So actually, yes, it might look good, but it's fighting for a slice slice of a smaller pie um, and and that's that's really where the challenge um, happens. We spoke earlier about renewable aviation fuel and diesel. A lot of refineries are incentivized through policies to switch to producing things like sustainable aviation fuels, and it's more economic to do so. So you're seeing some mega refineries that are either earmarked that or that have already closed, and that that for a uh, a heavy producer is something to look at. And the the, the story around um, the Venezuelan barrels are, you know, that, that is correct, but there's always a risk that they came back to the market. They haven't gone. Sure. They would be slow to come back. But, I mean, stranger things have happened, right? We have <laughs> three three of the Indeed. largest producers in the world that are now sanctioned and the world's reeling from oil price inflation. Uh, what's the lesser of the evils, I guess, is is the answer. Whether Would they allow Iranian barrels back? Would they allow Venezuelan barrels back? probably not going to allow Russian barrels back anytime soon. So there's a lot of battles being fought on a lot of fronts. So sure, I'm not sure it'd make uh, a hugely long-term investment based off of a policy. That's a real risk, I think.
0: Okay. Um, I We've left the best for last. <laughs> Net zero implies collapse in demand. And I remember in discussing uh, this uh, because Colin, Colin McCarriker, uh uh, on the EV side, they had done some. Uh, probably it was your shop that did the oil demand, and in his report in the EV outlook, uh, there was a, a net zero. Uh, what does net zero mean for collapse in, or in for oil demand? And and you've got the same kind of kind of curve here. And the betting always is, well, are governments serious? I mean, a are they going to make the commitment? And then B, are they going to follow through with it? And let me let me say right up front, Canada is the king or queen of talk is cheap. We make all kinds of promises, and you know we're still one of the the highest emitters per capita in the world, and we, you know, we have not we basically had plateaued our GHG emissions, and that's the best we can say uh, at this point. So. What's your What's your take on this? Uh, you know, the likelihood that, that policy will actually uh, destroy some or a lot of demand for oil?
1: I think it will displace some and a lot, but I think you're right. Like, talk is quite cheap, and it's a fitting time with everybody in Egypt at the moment making claims for net zero. Um, policy lags. The claims that people are making, I would say, is, is, the, is the thing. Actually, uh, in, our, in our net zero scenario that Colin would have spoken about um, when he was speaking to you last, we kind of go slow until 2030 and then accelerate. Yeah. All of the different net zero worlds and scenarios that you look at from all of the different providers have very different assumptions. It could be that we all live in tiny houses. It could be that we have a much smaller population. So when we don't know what the world looks like, in any of these scenarios, and we can only use those as sort of a gauge to the direction to move from. Either way, we're already really slow. We're already behind. And policy is not pushing um, fast enough. In many cases, it's pushing in the right direction. But also policy, policy doesn't want to go too fast, because in many of the big markets, the US, Canada, Europe, pushing too fast in policy loses a vote. And before you know it, there's Strikes diesel costs sure. onto the roof. They're around the, the Triomphe. It goes on. Lorry drivers have stopped. It's a very delicate balance on the way down. But absolutely, policy is not keeping up with the claims that politicians are making. Um, but I can see why that's happening. It's just, it's a shame that that comes down to fear of who's in power really at the end of the day.
0: Sure. Um, fair enough. Um there was something I wanted to talk to you about to kind of wrap up this conversation. And, uh, I was so engrossed by your, uh, discussion of net zero that I've, I've gone and forgotten it. Uh, (laughs) but Oh, I know what it was. Uh, See, as you get older, David, what you'll find is the train of thought leaves the station, but the good news is it always comes back again. (laughs) So what I wanted to talk is, is, Global energy system inertia. This is something I hear economists talk about all the time, uh, you know, who arguing for a slower, a later peak demand and a slower decline is the global energy system has just become, it's so big and we're so dependent on it. And there are so, you know, so many trillions of dollars of assets have been built that are still economic that we're reluctant to to strand or to or to, you know, recycle, get rid of. And and that kind of inertia is really hard to overcome. And given the fact that you're in the modeling business, no doubt you've put some thought into the role that inertia plays. Uh, What's your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, if you're going to model anything from a net zero perspective, there, there will be a fossil fuel standard asset, whether that's an LNG terminal or refinery or a production facility. Um, really, it has to be, if you, if you don't want to strike a, a price spike, it has to be a demand side decline for any of these fossil fuels to move towards it. If you pull supply from a from a market quickly, or if you add supply in quickly, like we saw with the uh, the shale play, for example, and... Likewise, on the on the downside, we're seeing Russia cut off now, or we saw Saudi production being, even Saudi transport being stopped. In the, but with the Suez Canal crisis and the ship last year, um, you see price spikes significant enough to cause a lot of pain, right? Or a price decline significant again to cause some pain. If it's managed from the demand side, and 2020 being a crazy demand shock of a big decline in demand that doesn't generally happen in a normal world, a gradual decline causes this to solve its solve itself, or at least to solve itself slowly, so that there's less of a pain. That said, I'm a big proponent of finding uses for many of the assets that are already built and in place, and we have to be really smart about what our pensions are linked to, what all of our investments are added into. It's great to say, let's move towards a net zero world, Um, but if, you know, Canada pension plan tomorrow was worth zero and couldn't pay out any of their policies (laughs) because they had invested into a bunch of refineries or, or oil sands. That's another problem. So everything causes another problem, and it's really trying to guess what the next problem or the knock-on effect of this decision is. So I think there needs to be a pragmatism of the thing to how we can repurpose things. So that could be, again, turning it into renewable fuel plants, um, if it's a refinery, um, moving it towards net zero production to be the last barrel standing, so to speak, or using it as a storage facility. There are some options we're quickly running out of options as to what to shift them into, but I think we have to have a sort of pragmatism so that we don't spook people. Cause if we're, if we're not pragmatic about that, you spook people and they will not get involved from the beginning. Um, and then we're, we're nowhere, you know, we're not getting any better. So.
0: Look, I, 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 I meant to end our interview with that question, but another uh, question popped into my head. So if you'll forgive me and, and, and bear with me for a few minutes, the, um, the One of the problems that Canadian policymakers have is, is that there is no modeling available for the impact of declining demand on the Canadian oil and gas industry. You know, what happens to prices, you know, we, we saw in 2014 uh, demand went down. We had, an over, sorry, it did over, we had an oversupply of a million and a half to two million barrels a day and prices just went in the tank. So if you took out one and a half to two million barrels a day, what does that do to price? If you take out five, if you take out 10, if you take out 25. And now you have you still have that hundred million barrels a day of, of supply chasing around after customers. Um the, does that does that mean that once the demand sets in that prices are likely to crash?
1: Yeah, but my point is that they're they're normally slower to decline. So they don't have these step changes. But it's not, I mean, we had some sort of uh there was excitement last year when we when we had negative oil prices, right? For, and said for the first time WCI closed. Down. If you went back to 2016, there was negative hard disk barrel prices, right? What do you do if it's coming out? Where do you send it to? Uh, so it's actually not a new craze. Ultimately, it's a supply-demand economic equation, right? Um, but yeah, absolutely, should this happen, you will have barrels that need to chase at home. And if not, it's then perhaps worth shutting in that production. And there will be, I think in any of these scenarios, there there will be stranded assets, it's it's which ones, and then it's um, how is that swallowed or who pays for it? And and you're seeing this in lots of commodities across the world. You've got the Indonesian government working with international philanthropists and societies to work out how do we stop our coal plants from working, but also who pays for that? We've got huge amounts of coal generation assets. We're gonna close them maybe, but maybe, and then who pays for that investment? How does that work? This transition financing is a real key question, I think, around the world for all these different types of assets.
0: So my takeaway from this is that modeling is a very uncertain business, and totally. there are lots of lots of uh, unknown or var- variables that could go one way or the other, uh, and uh, so we'll have to wait and see how this this all plays out. But you've answered a number of my questions that I that have been bugging me for a long time, David, because I, I get into discussions around uh, Canadian oil and gas, all you know, on a regular basis. Um, so, thank you very much for this. Um, well, when you release your report next year, maybe uh, we'll have you back again uh, in six months or eight months or something to talk about it, because I'm I still want to talk to you at some point about the re-power EU, uh, and if they're successful, if Europe is uh, successful in electrifying. Uh, what does that do to demand? I mean, there's just—it seems like the landscape is changing so quickly, uh, either at uh, the technology landscape or customer preferences. In the case of EVs, or or, or government policies. I mean, my goodness, uh, so much could change between now and the next time we chat. But I did enjoy this chat, so thank you very much for that.
1: Thanks for having me.